Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, by the light of your revelation, we can understand who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, there be a greater understanding, manifestation, and um, that we would understand and glorify you more for who Christ is and what he's done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it happened again this year on New Year's week. I went to the gym. And I had a hard time finding a parking spot. That first week of New Year's, uh, the gym is full. And uh, we are all trying to start the New Year's off right, and do the right thing, pursuing a certain kind of standard to lose a few pounds, a health standard, a beauty standard. So we're trying to do, we're trying to fulfill a kind of righteousness, doing the right thing. So this... Full gym at New Year's is evidence of a desire to fulfill a kind of righteousness. And a half-empty gym in early February (laughs) is evidence that it's hard. We don't often live up to our own standards. Well, in our gospel reading today, we see that Jesus, when he came to be baptized by John the Baptist, he said he came to fulfill all. Righteousness. Not the standards of the world, not the standards of culture, but the righteousness of God. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to do what God had called him to do. And that word righteousness can be defined in this context simply as God's will. He came, in other words, to perfectly obey the will of God. And that's what he did his whole ministry in life. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. The summary of the law. Jesus fulfilled that. Perfectly. Hey, you have wondered before in the past, well, why, why did Jesus come to be baptized by John? After all, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And yet we believe, and the church has always taught, that Jesus was sinless. And uh, if he wasn't sinless, then he could not be our savior from sin. A drowning man cannot save another drowning man. So why is the sinless one receiving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, he tells us again, he says to John, I've come. This is right for us to do in order to fulfill all righteousness, to do the will of God. Well, what does that look like? Let's unpack that a little bit more. How is the baptism of Jesus a fulfillment of righteousness? 
a doing of the will of God. Well, on one level, what Jesus is saying to John is, John, it's right for me to identify with what God is doing through you. That he recognizes John's baptism and this movement as a movement from God to prepare people for the kingdom of God, to prepare people to meet the Messiah of God. Whatever God is doing, Jesus is going to be there at the center of it. And so on one level, he's saying it's right for me to acknowledge that your ministry is from God. That the kingdom of God is breaking in here. There will be a day when Jesus supersedes John the Baptist. John the Baptist recognized that. I must decrease, he says at one point, and he must increase. But now, Jesus says, now it's right for me to identify with what God is doing through you. Jesus is obeying the will of God in this, submitting to the baptism of John. But there's a deeper meaning here. A deeper meaning of how this baptism speaks to us about how Jesus fulfills all righteousness. And that is that the sinless one is identifying with sinners like you and me. As he goes into the waters of the Jordan, he's identifying with sinners like you and me. Those of us who have not fulfilled, nor will we ever fulfill, all righteousness. We will not meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors exactly as we love ourselves. We fall short of this perfect standard. But Jesus, in submitting to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is identifying with people like us. And it will foreshadow, it does foreshadow, his ultimate act of obedience to the will of his Father. He was obedient to his Father in everything that he did. His whole life, was lived in submission to the will of his Father. Everything that he did, he said, was according to the will of the Father. The words that he spoke were the words that the Father had given him. He submitted all the way through his life and his public ministry, which is beginning right here with the baptism, to the will of God. But the ultimate act of obedience to the will of the Father, of course, is the cross. The ultimate act of obedience. As he wrestled with that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, yet not my will, but your will be done. Submitted himself to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. For us. Now, in our Old Testament reading, we see that God promised through the prophet Isaiah 
that one day he would send a servant, his chosen one. It says, in whom my soul delights. <coughs> several servant songs, several servant prophecies in the book of Isaiah. This is one of them. That there would be a servant. The Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one of God. And this servant, Isaiah 42 says, is going to be somebody who delivers people out of their prison. And those who are in dungeons of darkness... He will set them free. But then Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 53. Another one of these servant songs to talk about how this servant, how this Messiah would set people free. And it's not through military might or power. It's not through a great army or a treasure trove of material resources. Isaiah 53 tells us how this suffering servant is going to deliver people. He's going to deliver them through sacrifice. The suffering servant of God comes into view from Isaiah, in Isaiah 53. And you're familiar with these words. But he was wounded for our transgressions. For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And then later on at the end of this. Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. He who was not a transgressor. Somebody who breaks the law of God turns away from the will of God, this suffering servant would be numbered with them. He would identify with them. He would get into the waters of a baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, although he was not a sinner. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. Bore them away. From the judgment of God. That's the deeper significance of Jesus' baptism. The sinless one saves us by taking upon himself our sin. You see. It reminds me of the story of Father Damien. I think I've brought this up before. In fact, I know I have. But it's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus did. Father Damien was a priest, Catholic priest, who ministered to lepers. In the 19th century, there was a leper colony, I believe it was in, in, in Hawaii. And they called leprosy in those days the separating disease. Just like we see in New Testament times. People who had leprosy in the days of Jesus were separated from their community. The separating disease. If you had it, you had to isolate. We know something about that. A little taste of that, given what we've gone through with COVID. Isolation. But these people were isolated from their community for the rest of their life. No one had wanted to come into contact with them. And the colonies became places of darkness. Immorality. Drunkenness. Despair. A lack of sanitation. 
a place where this disease thrived until Father Damien came. He had a heart of compassion for them that no one wanted to touch. And he came into that colony and he started medical care and sanitation and he didn't separate from them. He touched them. He bandaged their wounds. He shared meals with them. And one day, as he was preparing for a service, bathing himself, he noticed he couldn't feel the water on his feet. And he knew that he had contracted this disease of the people that he ministered to. And he started his sermon different that morning. He didn't say brothers and sisters. He said, we lepers. We lepers. And they knew at that moment the depth of his sacrificial love for them. That's how deeply he identified with them that he was willing to take on, to risk taking on their disease. It's a picture of what our Lord has done. That he who is sinless became sin for us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that what? We might become the righteousness of Of God. He bore our transgressions. No matter how distant you might feel from God. No matter what you have done. No matter how far you have fallen below the standard that God has set. No matter your questions or your doubts. You can bring all those to Jesus. You can cast that upon Jesus. And He will take that. As you come to Him in faith and trust and repentance, He will take that. And He'll give you His righteousness. So that you can have peace with God. A great exchange. My sin, my faithlessness for His righteousness and faithfulness. Trust in the righteousness that God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. Let's trust it. Let's continue to cling to Jesus for our justification. But how can we be so sure, you say, how, <clears throat> how can we know that Jesus is the one who fulfills all righteousness? There are other paths, there are other religions, there are other purported saviors. How can we be so sure? Well, God confirms here, doesn't he? God himself endorses Jesus with miraculous signs. The... Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And I'm not sure why it's a dove. A lot of ink has been spilt and there's no consensus. But there's conjecture. 
But the point is that the Spirit of God descends upon him and there's this outward sign of an invisible reality that is happening to Jesus. That is, he is being anointed with the Spirit of God. There's the outward sign and he is filled with the Spirit of God to do what God has called him to do. The outward sign and the invisible reality of the filling of the Holy Spirit to empower him to obey the will of God and carry out the ministry God has given him. That was visible. A miraculous sign as the heavens are opened. And then <clears throat> the Father's voice speaks. The Father's voice spoke at Jesus' transfiguration. These are two climactic moments that reveal the identity of Jesus, his baptism and the transformation, transfiguration. And the Father's voice speaks, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Or echoing the words of Isaiah 42 that we read, whom my soul delights. This is the servant of God. This is the Messiah. This is my Son. The promised one from the line of David is what God is doing here. He's confirming who Jesus is and what he came to do. You know, if there have not been those kinds of signs throughout Jesus's ministry, the miracles and the supernatural signs, there would have been no Jesus movement at all. People came out to see Jesus because of these miraculous signs that God bestowed upon him throughout his public ministry to point them to who he was. No miracles, no signs, no Jesus. No New Testament. No Christianity. It's fundamental to our faith that God did this in the ministry of Jesus to demonstrate who Christ was. To demonstrate that he was the Christ. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we live in a skeptical age with regard to the miracles of the Bible and the supernatural. And people are willing to entertain the ideas of the supernatural in other realms, but so many are skeptical about the miracles and the supernatural that we see in the Bible. And yet there are times in our culture where we see people turning to something beyond themselves. Uh, we saw it this week. Something dramatic happened this week on Monday Night Football. Did you see this? When um, DeMar Hamlin, the safety for the Buffalo Bills, went down because of cardiac arrest. In a moment, this healthy young man was laying on the field and nobody knew what was happening. And then the reaction to that. Let's pray. The team gathered around to pray. The commentators on TV talked about prayer and, 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 and called for prayer. It's an amazing thing. And then later on in the week, one of the ESPN commentators live on TV, maybe you saw this. He said, I don't know what to do, but to pray. And we're going to pray right now on ESPN. He stopped, he bowed his head, and he offered up a prayer that God would bring healing to this young man. And he's doing better, thank God. 
But I heard one commentator say, even though we live in a more skeptical culture and there are people turning away from the God of the Bible and turning away from Christ, there are moments, he said, when we reach for something beyond ourselves. Because there's an instinct that God has put in our heart for the supernatural, for something beyond our resources. And we see the supernatural breaking out of the ministry of Jesus. Even at the very beginning, at his baptism, these signs are given to confirm that Jesus is the sent one, the Savior that God has sent. Friends, our faith has a basis. We do have reasons to believe in Jesus, and these signs are one of those reasons. And it should be a great comfort to us to know that God has provided this kind of evidence, and that even though, as J.C. Ryle says, when it comes to our salvation, we face great enemies. We face three enemies, J.C. Ryle said. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But at the baptism of Jesus, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working together for our salvation. And if God is for you, who can stand against you? That should be a comfort as we navigate this life. As we struggle with our own questions and fears and doubts and struggle with sin. That God is for us. He's for you and your salvation. The Father speaks. The Spirit descends. The Son obeys. To enact this plan of salvation. Jesus came in the plan of God to fulfill all righteousness. But then I want you to notice something else here as I draw to a conclusion. In the Gospel that Jesus said, it is fitting for us to, fu to fulfill all righteousness. Talking to John the Baptist, it is fitting for us. So, <clears throat> Jesus had a unique role in the fulfillment of righteousness, of course. John the Baptist had a role to play in fulfilling righteousness. And we do too. All of those who have been called children of God, saved by what Christ has done for them, are called to live a, right, a life of righteousness, obedience to the will of God. It's not what saves us. Jesus' righteousness saves us. But from that salvation, we are called to live a life of obedience to God. By the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus at His baptism has been given to those who put their faith in Jesus. The same Spirit that descended upon Jesus and filled Him is in you and empowers you to obey, empowers you to live a life of righteousness. Not perfectly, of course, only Christ has done that but as a way to glorify and honor the one who has saved us. I want you to listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 10, where John the Apostle is concerned to teach 
the early church how to know the difference between somebody who really is a child of God and somebody who is not. And he says this in John, 1 John 3.10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or evident. So he says, now here's a test where you can see if somebody is a child of God or a child of the enemy of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And here it is. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever is not pursuing obedience to the will of God, whoever's lifestyle bears no resemblance or shows no, no fruit of the holiness of God. John says, there's reason to doubt that such a person is a child of God. If they're not practicing in any way, shape, or form this kind of righteousness. Or somebody who does not love his brother or sister in Christ. Is the same spirit of Christ in such a person? The spirit of love, if they don't love brothers and sisters in Christ. So, friends, we're called by the Holy Spirit to pursue this way of righteousness. Somebody texted me this, well, actually it was on New Year's Day, somebody from the church, and said, Happy New Year's. <clears throat> it's another year, she said, every day. To ask, what is the will of God? And to seek to do His will. That's right. That should be our heart as Christians. Again, we don't do this perfectly. This is not the basis of our standing with God. But it is an outworking of the salvation that God has given us. So even better than getting to the gym every day. As good as that is. Or learning a new language in the new year. Or a new hobby. Getting your finances in order. Setting some goals. All that's good. But how about asking yourself and asking before the Lord this year. What does it mean for me to pursue Righteousness. And are there things in my life, attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, that are taking me away from the will of God? And ask the Holy Spirit to empower you afresh this new year. To follow the example of your Savior, who has given you His righteousness. So that you might live a life that glorifies Him. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to do that. That you will, by your Spirit, draw each of us to yourself. Give us time to reflect on these things. So that we can honor you with our lives. We thank you for the righteousness that you've given us in Jesus Christ. A perfect righteousness. 
And that when you see us, you do not see our sin and our failure, our guilt, our shame. But you see the righteousness of your Son. What a great salvation. We thank you so much and we're grateful for that. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to grow this new year, 2023, to become more like Jesus, to bring him more glory, to have more opportunities to share the good news of Christ in our words and in our deeds. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.